Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now you remember, he had moved, to, he had gone to Athens, he had, he had fled Berea because uh, the, the Jews from, the unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica had come down to started stirring up trouble. And so they whisked him out of there and took him to Athens. And he went to Athens and he saw all the different uh, uh, idols that were there and he began to uh, speak about the gospel uh, to the, to the, uh, uh, in the city square, in the city market there. And so now he's leaving Athens. So after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and, and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of, of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So Paul left Athens. Now we don't really know why he left Athens, because he, he had sent word back uh, to Silas and Timothy that they were to come and meet him in Athens, but we don't know exactly why he left Athens, but we do know he left. He, Luke doesn't tell us uh, specifically, although the language that's used there does imply that he separated himself from these believers that he, that he had uh, uh, reached in Athens with some level of regret. Now, he may have left Athens for personal reasons. He may have uh, found, it, uh, found no opportunity to carry on his trade of tent making because Athens was not a commercial center. It was a very much a uh, a philo philosophical center and a that that uh, you know a learning and a knowledge center, but it wasn't a great city for commerce because it wasn't uh, like Corinth, as we'll see in a minute, is very different than that. And so he might not have been able to set up his tent making business, might not have been able to do that. And because he wasn't didn't have any income and he was separated from his entourage, uh, you know, we know that there were times that Paul later he described some times in his in his journey where he didn't have enough to eat. This may have been one of those moments. He may have had to leave Athens because he just couldn't get in enough uh, money through tent selling to and making his tents to actually feed himself. So this may have been one of those times. We don't know. On the other hand, it very well could have been that he left Athens because he knew of the great need in Corinth. He had this tendency to go to these great commercial centers because he knew that would be a great hub for the gospel. And so maybe knowing what he knew about Corinth, maybe he decided, listen, I just need to go there. Somehow or another, though, he did get word back to Silas and Timothy because later we just read that they came and they met him in Corinth coming from Macedonia. So he goes to Corinth. Now Corinth has a long history. Uh, it was originally a city-state. If you remember back to your Western civilization uh, class, uh, when they study about, the, about the, the Greeks, you had four different city-states that were there. You had Corinth and Athens and Sparta, and I don't remember the other one, it doesn't matter, because we're not talking about them tonight. 
but uh, it was a city-state, and its main competitor was, with, was Athens. And, uh, and it had a history of being a very prosperous commercial center. But in 146 B.C., the city of Corinth was involved in a rebellion against Rome, and in 146 B.C., Rome leveled it, wiped out the city. And it sat there uh, just a, in ruins for about 100 years. And in about a, a century later, Julius Caesar looked at the situation and he knew uh, that the, that the pl- situation where the city was, it was an ideal spot uh, for the commercial growth uh, for the, uh, the Roman Empire. And so he rebuilt the city. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and if you can just take one of these and one of these maps and you can, uh, you, you'll see, uh, we're not going to really apply, to, uh, uh, look at this very much, but I just want you to see how Corinth was situated, what made it such an ideal place as, as we look at it, because Corinth set on the, on the isthmus, which that bears its name, and it had not one, but it actually had two seaports. Now, an isthmus is, is just a very thin strip of land that's connecting two larger pieces of land. So you can see there uh, where Achaia is and and, uh, and you see that little tiny strip of land there, and on, and on one side there's water leading to the Aegean Sea. On the other side, there's, there's sort of a harbor-type deal that's leading to the, to the Ionian Sea with access to Italy one way and access to Asia the other way. And, and Corinth sat right on that little strip of land there. And uh, what that did was, it, it, uh, uh, in fact, you, you know what they did? Uh, Corinth had devised a very clever system of moving ships across the land there. Because it was a much, it was much shorter. They they used the system of different logs and different things, and they were actually they would actually drag the ships manually. Uh, they take them out of the water on one side and drag it across that strip of land to the other side. Uh, obviously, very difficult labor, but it was shorter for one thing. But it was also much safer because sailing around the southern tip of, of Greece was a very dangerous journey, and so it, it was actually known as the as the bridge of, of Greece. Um, and whoever controlled Corinth also controlled the flow of trade between east and west by sea and, and, and all north and south traffic by land. Now, the city of Corinth not only was prosperous, but it was also uh, permeated with religion. And there were at least 12 temples that were located there. The most infamous of these was the Temple of Aphrodite. And uh, she was the, quote, goddess of love. And it loomed, it sat 1,900 feet overhead on the summit of a, of a very large hill, an outcropping of rock called the Acrocorinth. And it was the highest point in the entire city. So it just loomed large, you know, over the, over that, uh, the, the city. And, and there were a, a thousand uh, female t- uh, prostitutes that enticed worshipers from the uh, farthest reaches of the Roman Empire. And uh, another temple was there that dedicated to Apollo and employed young men whose job was to fulfill the sexual desires of male and female worshipers. And largely due to uh, this fact, the city was notorious for its immorality. The Greeks even coined a new word. They came up with a new word to express extreme immorality. And they said it meant you, it meant you were that you, it, to Corinthianize. In fact, Plato, he, uh, he, he, when he was, if he referred to a prostitute, he would call them a Corinthian girl. 
This is, this is the reputation of this city. And, and perhaps no city on earth pre presented Paul a greater challenge. You know, if there was, listen, here's, here's the thing. This was the Las Vegas of their day. And it was, it was, if there was, a, there was no greater challenge than the Las Vegas-like city of Corinth. And from a human point of view, Corinth was not the type of place where one would expect to launch a thriving ministry. But you know what? Paul didn't view things from an earthly perspective. He saw Corinth, yes, he saw a challenge there. He saw a challenge there, but he also saw a great ministry opportunity. You know, when we look at the world around us, you look even here where we, where we live, you look at Memphis, and we, we, you know, we look at that and we talk about the gospel penetrating downtown Memphis and the difficult areas of Memphis, and, and you think that's a challenge. Yes, that's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. You, you talk about, you know, we were talking about earlier in our prayer time about these nations where Islam has a chokehold on, the, on all of the, the government and all the resources, and we look at that and say, wow, that's a real challenge. Yes, it's a challenge, but more than that, it's a great ministry opportunity because where the darkness is the darkest, that's where the light can make the biggest difference. And so at Corinth, uh, Paul goes there and he meets a husband and wife. Uh, and they were, they, this couple, they were, they were to become uh, his most faithful friends and fellow laborers in the gospel. The man, the husband was named Aquila. He was a Jew. He was a native of Pontus, uh, which was a Roman province located in northern Asia Minor, east of Bithynia on the Black Sea. And, uh, and, and now the name Aquila... Uh, it literally means eagle, and it was a very common slave name in Rome. And so there's, there's a lot of speculation that when the Romans conquered Pontus, that Aquila's family was captured and sold or given away as slaves in Rome. And so uh, th that's Aquila. But his wife was named Priscilla, which is a, a diminutive, uh, dimi diminutive, I can't say that word tonight, you know what I'm saying, of the, of the name Prisca. And, it, and that name indicated that she was an upper-class Roman. That's a very strange combination when you begin to think of it. And, and you know what? It's actually, it's at least possible that Priscilla's father had been Aquila's master. It's very possible. Who, and, he, and he may have helped her to uh, come to faith in the one true God, the God of Israel. And then when the father of Aquila, uh, uh, father, when her father set Aquila free, then uh, he, he married Priscilla. I, I found it very interesting when you think about Aquila, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. One of the things that's interesting is that in all the Bible, they are never mentioned separately. Anytime they're mentioned, they're talked about together. You know, and I think about, you know, marriage and ministry. In both marriage and in ministry, they were together. They were working in concert. They made an eternal difference in countless lives together. And really, you know, when I think of them, I think, you know, that's really the goal of a marriage that, that has Christ as its foundation, is to make a difference and to serve God together. But that's, that's a whole different issue we're going to spend a lot of time on tonight. Now... The reason Luke gives for Aquila and Priscilla being in Corinth rather than at Rome where they had settled and to which they were obviously happy to return because later on when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, Aquila and Priscilla were back in Rome. 
but the reason they weren't in Rome now at this point in time and that they were in Corinth is that Claudius, who was the emperor at the time, had expelled all the Jews from the Rome. Now, why would he do that? Why would he, why would he make that, that edict? Well, there's, uh, uh, there's writing from a secular historian named Suetonius that kind of gives us some hints in uh, his writing that he wrote is called The Life of Claudius. Suetonius wrote of Jewish riots that were inst- instigated by a person that he called Crestus. That's very interesting because um, the, the, when the, uh, when the uh, Romans would speak about Jesus or Christ, they would often call him Christos, Christus, but also when they would talk about Christians, they didn't always use the I, they often used the E. So it seems to indicate that this very well could be a reference to uh, the same kind of things that were happening to Paul, where the, the, the non-believing Jews would rise up and they would uh, start causing trouble and start riots in the cities. What likely happened was these Jewish believers were told on the day of Pentecost that there were, there were Jews from Rome. Uh, there in Jerusalem. Well, some of those Jews from Rome very likely went back to Rome and started spreading the message about Jesus, the Christ. And then the unbelieving Jews rose up to, in opposition and riots broke out. And rather than taking time to sort through all of this information, it was just easier for Claudius just to simply say, all right, you know what? I have had enough of this. All Jews out of Rome. And when that happened... The city of Corinth became a really popular refuge for Jews fleeing from this expulsion of Claudius. Now, whenever an emperor made an edict like that, when the emperor died, that edict would go away. And so that's why later Aquila and Priscilla were able to return to Rome because when uh, when, uh, Claudius died, the next emperor was Nero. and, And when Nero became emperor, they were allowed to come back. And so that's why they went back. But, the, but all these Jews fleeing Rome had come, many of them had come to Corinth. And so a synagogue of unknown, unknown size formed amid the, uh, the, the sprawl of pagan settlers who were seeking an immediate fortune and, and unbridled pleasures. And that's how Priscilla and Aquila, probably already Christians, by the way, ended up in Corinth. And I, and I say that to say this, you know, that it wasn't an accident. They weren't in Corinth accidentally. Uh, they, were, they, were, they could have been anywhere in the world, but we know the scripture says that the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. I believe with all my heart that God knew that Paul was going to need a relationship with Aquila and Priscilla. And we're going to see in a few minutes that Paul hit some times in, in the city of Corinth that he was struggling a little bit. Uh, the, there was some fear that began to creep in probably and, and he needed somebody, you know, we've talked about it recently. No man is an island, spiritually speaking. We need one another. And Paul, he had left everybody else behind. He needed, when he got to Corinth, he needed some people like Aquila and Priscilla. And God in his sovereignty had gone ahead of Paul and he had used an edict from a godless emperor to get these two into the place where he needed them to be in that moment. I think that's amazing to me. Well, somehow, now we don't know how he heard about Aquila and Priscilla. We don't know how they connected, but somehow or another, they connected with each other. And in in that uh, relationship with Priscilla and Aquila, 
Paul found uh, in their home a place to live and then a place to carry on his trade because they were also tent makers and they had been able to already to establish their business in Corinth successfully. I want to say this, um, when, when you talk about tent maker, you know, we, we think of like pup tents and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the, the term tent maker probably refers as much to a leather worker as it does just a tent maker. And so they were probably doing all kinds of things. But uh, when you talk about a tent, uh, you know, uh, they, they would be used by, uh, by uh, uh, people involved in commercial trade, They'd military, you know, all the armies would use it. There's a very good chance that Paul was selling a lot of uh, tents to the, to the Roman army because Corinth was such a, a great uh, place for them to travel through. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a very prosperous place for them to be with this. And so anyway, they're, they're working on this all together as, as tent makers. And, uh, and, and in the process, either they took Paul on as a partner in their tent making business or at a very minimum, maybe they hired him as their, as their employee. But we do know this, that, that Paul worked with them in order not to be a burden to anyone while he preached the gospel. Uh, not only that, there were also people, especially in cities like Corinth, who would come in and they would, they would teach some philosophy and, and receive offerings and get money from people and then just disappear. And Paul didn't want anybody to think that's what he was doing. So he wanted to make sure that everybody there knew uh, you know, that that's not what he was doing, that he was, he was, he was going to support himself. So while he's there, Silas and Timothy, they show up in Corinth coming from Macedonia, and when they came, they brought God good news about the Thessalonian church. Now remember, when Paul left there, it was in an uproar. There's persecution going on. You know, it's not like he had a cell phone. He couldn't call up the Thessalonians and say, hey, how are you guys doing? Are you hanging in there? Is everything okay? He had to wait for news. He had no idea if the church there was going to make it. And so uh, Silas and Timothy showed up, and it was while after they showed up, that's when he wrote First and Second Timothy. It was uh, from the city of Corinth. And... Uh, and this is what it said in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you, uh, that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you, bring to, uh, you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you were standing firm in the Lord. So now he hears they're doing great. He, 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 the, the enemies of the gospel had not been able to turn them away from the Lord. They hadn't been able to turn them against Paul. Their faith and their continuance, continuance in the gospel cheered him, and, they, and it relieved the pressure of his passionate concern for them because he loved them so dearly, and he wanted them to grow in the Lord so, so desperately that, uh, that this, there's this internal pressure of worrying, this care for the church. He talks about it in other places. And it gave him some courage to move, keep moving forward. Now we also know from other places that Silas and Timothy also brought an offering. We read about it in Philippians, uh, offering that the Philippian church, because they were one of the only churches that consistently stood with Paul. But the offering that they brought... It, that enabled, that it enabled Paul to give himself exclusively to preaching. See, now, tent making is not a part-time job, especially back in those days. 
he would, he would work night and day in order to support himself and he would, he would preach when he could. He'd go to the synagogue on Sabbath day. But now the church in Philippi has sent this offering and it was generous enough that now the scripture says that he was able to give himself exclusively to preaching. I'll tell you what, if that's not a scripture that shows us the importance of our missions giving, I don't know what is. Because here's Paul, he's, he's not able to give himself fully to the work that God has called him to do because he has to su support himself, he has to eat, and he's not going to put a burden on the people he's trying to reach. And now a church gives him an offering and he's able to pour himself completely into that ministry. And, and, and now apparently up to this point in time, there really hadn't been uh, any great response to the gospel in Corinth. Not much at all, probably because his time was limited. And now that Paul was able to devote himself exclusively to preaching, this increased the intensity of his preaching in the synagogue, and it caused most of the unbelieving Jews to move from this being indifference to suddenly rising up against the gospel. And in opposing Paul, it says that they became abusive, speaking against him in the gospel. In fact, the language used there, it says that they blasphemed against not against God, but against Paul. Uh, because when we use the word blasphemy, we use it in the spiritual sense. But in the, in the simplest sense of the word and the way it was used often then, it, it's just an attack on a person or an idea. So a blasphemy against God would be an attack on him or his character. And so blasphemy against you would be attacking you or your character. And so they were attacking him personally in this. And Paul, it, you know, he finally he just has had enough. And he responds with this dramatic gesture where he's shaking out his cloak so that not even a speck of dust from that synagogue is going to remain on him. And then he declared to them, it sounds so dramatic, he says that their blood, he says your blood will be on your own heads. That is that you're going to be responsible for the judgment God would send on you. He, he, he had warned them. And he was clear of his responsibility. Now they would understand immediately, of course, that he was referring to the responsibility God gave to Ezekiel to warn people in Ezekiel chapter 3. And Paul's saying, listen, I've done my part. Um, I've, I've told you about Jesus. I've warned you about the, the consequences. And he says, from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Now, I want to say this. This was not from now on in all places. Because we know after this, he still continued to go to the Jews first. He's saying in Corinth, in this city, he said, from now on, I'm not going to be coming into the synagogue to try to tell you, I've already told you, you have clearly rejected it, so now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And so Paul left the synagogue, but this is the part that kind of cracks me up. He left the synagogue and he didn't go very far because he went next door. <laughs> he said, I'm out of here. See you later. Anybody want to come? I'm going next door. And so he goes next door to the house of a God-fearing Gentile named Titius Justice. And there he began to preach the gospel. And we know that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were not the only ones to leave the synagogue because this was a major breakthrough. This is the first time this has happened because here, even the ruler of the synagogue, whose name was Crispus, uh, made a decision to believe in the Lord. And his entire household, including his close relatives and his servants, 
believed uh, his example and, and made the same decision. And we know that cost him. In fact, it cost him his leadership, his leadership position because in a few moments we're going to see that there's another man named Sosthenes who becomes the ruler of the synagogue. That's the person who was in charge of taking care of the synagogue, making sure everything was, all the maintenance was done. And he was, he was in charge, he was the, he was sort of like the pastor of the synagogue in a way. And, and now the, it cost him because he didn't have that. It was a very prestigious position. And we're also told that many of the Gentile Corinthians also believed and were baptized. But let's read verse 19, or excuse me, verse 9, because this is very interesting. And we'll, we'll talk about this now and then we'll come back to it at the end. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul, st Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching, the word, the, the, teaching them the word of God. Now, there's a reason why the Lord would show up and speak to Paul in a vision, don't be afraid. Because if, if Paul wasn't sensing some level of fear or trepidation in the city with what was going on, because now the Jews are turning against him, there'd be no reason for God to say, don't be afraid. See, in, in Paul's mind, a, a seed of worry took, wrote, uh, took, took root, that, that the pattern of the previous cities was about to be repeated, which was rejection by Jews, and then progress among the Gentiles, and then there'd be fury from the Jews, and, and then just when the gospel gained a, a foothold, there'd be expulsion by either mob violence or judicial process. And, and the fear grew in him uh, that he would never uh, find a city where he's going to be able to lay a spiritual foundation and then build unhurriedly. So I picture in my mind one night late as he sat by himself in the upper room at, a, at Aquila's house. The city's noise had, had ceased except for the occasional barking of a dog and, or the metallic tramp of, uh, of, of guards on their, on their rounds on the streets. And fear seemed to be gaining an upper hand. Because, listen, he was, after all, human. We, we think, you know, uh, back on these, on these situations and these men of God, and we forget, because we're separated by this, this barrier of time and culture, but especially time, and, and we read about it, and, and we think to ourselves, wow, they were just so much different than us. No, they were just like us. He, you know, he dreaded the physical agony of another stoning or another beating with rods. And he dreaded the, the desolation of being flung out of, out of the town again, with, now with winter coming upon them. And knowing that the sea at this time of the year was so turbulent and there was nowhere to, to take his stiff aging uh, joints but to the mountain trails of the Peloponnesus. Would he... Would he face the beatings and the imprisonment again? Could he handle that pain again? Could he deal with the humiliation again? He was extraordinary in many, many ways, but no less afflicted by the outrage of these false accusations and the physical and emotional trauma of beatings and imprisonment. I mean, any normal person would begin to shudder at the prospect of more suffering. But here's what I love. In the moment of his fear, in the moment where he's wrestling with these things in his heart, Jesus appeared to him in a vision and told him 
that should keep on speaking the word in Corinth and not be silent. He said that the Lord was with him just as he had promised his disciples that he would be. And he promised that he would not allow anyone to attack him or harm him in Corinth for he had many people in the city. That is that many would, come, yet would yet come to know Jesus and become part of the family of God. Thus encouraged by the vision, Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months, a year and a half. This was the first extended stay by Paul in any of the cities he had preached in so far. And, and, and during all this time, there was, there was no violence and no one harmed Paul just as the Lord promised. But that doesn't mean it all went perfectly smooth, as we're going to see beginning in verse 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, which he came into power in around A.D. 51. By the way, the fact that, that Luke includes his name uh, is a huge, huge boon to historians and to uh, those who study the Bible because so much of what Paul's journeys and his, his uh, lifetime and his ministry, uh, it's very difficult to pin down when these things happen. But when he, by mentioning the, the name Gallio, uh, there was some time, something that happened a few years ago that, uh, that, they, that archaeologists found uh, an inscription that, that mentioned him, and it told us the year that he came into power and the year that he left. And so that gives us a very good time frame. And we know that these events are happening around 51, 50 to 51 A.D. So while Gallio was proconsul in Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. By the way, that last phrase is a legal phrase used in their courts that says, that, that, that says I'm not going to rule in this. Case is dismissed. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader. So now that's we know. Crispus is no longer the synagogue leader. Now it's Sosthenes. And beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. By the way, historically, from what we know about him and the things that we've read about him and the things that he wrote, we know that Gallio was not a friend of the Jews. He was uh, really pretty anti-Semitic. He did not like Jews. And so this was, not about, uh, this, was, this was not about him being a great upstanding man, although he had a good reputation among their, the, 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 the people of those day. This is more about him saying, Jews again, I don't want to mess with it. So anyway, here we are. In the summer of A.D. 51, a new proconsul named Gallio was appointed by the Roman Senate to govern the province of Achaia, which is part of Greece, modern-day Greece. The unbelieving Jews apparently thought that they could take advantage of his newness, of his lack of knowledge of the situation. Therefore, they made a united attack on Paul. Now remember, there's a very large Jewish population. There was a, you know, uh, at least one synagogue, may have been more synagogues. We don't really know. Uh, but they all get together and they make a united attack on Paul and brought him into the court before the governor's judgment seat. 
And and to Gallio, speaking to him, they accused Paul of persuading men to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And that was a very vague charge, probably intentionally so, because they knew if they charged Paul with violating Jewish law, that he would say, get out of here. So they're trying to imply that he's breaking Roman law. And so we know that Roman law allowed Judaism as a legal religion uh, and so these unbelieving Jews were now saying that Christianity was different from Judaism and therefore it was illegal. This is a very important judicial decision for the spread of the gospel in Roman Empire. Because as I said, Judaism was a recognized religion under Roman law. It was called a religio licita or legal religion. And these Jews wanted Christianity declared religio illicita or illegal religion. And as long as Christians were seen as a sect within Judaism, then the court was going to refuse to hear cases brought against them but, uh, because they, were, they said that we've already decided this is a legal religion. If the Jews, however, were successful in this case in declaring Christianity as a new and separate religion, then it could easily have been outlawed by the government. Now, now we know Paul had been in this position before. This was not his first time standing before a court. On those other occasions, we know it had never been, he had never received the opportunity to mount a defense or to call witnesses or even tell his side of the story. So when he opened his mouth to speak and Gallio cut him off, I have no doubt in that moment maybe his stomach tightened a little bit. But to his delight, Gallio recognized the foolishness of the situation He said, there's no crime involved here because it seemed to him that the cases against Paul uh, involved nothing but questions about words and names and their own Jewish law. And he told them that they could see to that themselves. And in fact, Gallio was saying, I don't understand all of your terminology and the finer points of your theology. And he says, I really don't want to know that. Handle the matter yourselves and don't bother me. Which is probably why they allowed him them to then beat Sosthenes, because he said, handle it yourselves. That's why he just didn't care. Well, Gallio's decision proved to be, extre- and to be, proved to be extremely beneficial for the emerging Christian church for the next 10 to 12 years because his ruling became a legal precedent and it was actually used in Paul's trial in Rome. If Gallio at this point had found that Paul uh, was guilty then every governor of every province in the Roman Empire could arrest Christians. And by not ruling against Paul, the Romans were including Christianity as one of the legal religions of the Roman Empire. So Gallio, in effect, even though he didn't care, didn't know what was going on, he helped spread the gospel throughout the empire. Now, here's something that we can see in this. When Paul was dragged before the Gallio, As I said, he'd been there before and it had never gone very well for him, had it? Had never gone well. This seemed like a really bad situation, didn't it? It seemed like, oh no, here we go again. It's the same stuff. I don't know, this is is just not going to go good for us. But what seemed bad was something that in the middle of those circumstances, God was at work doing something much bigger. 
It was a lot more than, about, about a lot more than Paul and whether he had broken any laws. It was about God using the whole situation to set the scenario whereby the gospel would be free to go everywhere where the Roman Empire was, which was almost the entire known world. See, God was, was working on a big picture thing. And it required Paul to face the jeopardy of, of standing in that court and standing before Gallio before that could be, that could be accomplished. So, so the lesson for us is sometimes we go through things that we may not understand and it may seem bad to us at the time. It may seem difficult to us at the time, but the reality is we do know that God is at work weaving a grander scheme and that he's doing something bigger that we can't always see and can't always understand and may never understand until the day we see him in heaven. So then anyway, after this, Gallio had them, by the way, including Paul, because he was among them, he had them ejected from the court. And the fact that he had them driven from the court rather than merely sent away, it reveals his irritation uh, with what he evidently felt, felt was petty, trumped-up charges. And, and after the conclusion of the legal proceedings, the, the crowd that was gathered uh, became unruly and erupted in violence. Now this mob may have been Gentiles venting their feelings against the Jews for causing turmoil, or it may have been Jews uh, because all the Jews came together and they were ones bringing the charges. So the crowd may have been mostly the Jews that had gathered around. And if that's true, then Sosthenes, the, the newly designated leader of the synagogue, became the focal point of their anger and frustration, probably because he was seen as the one responsible for losing the case against Paul and, and, and he leaving the synagogue worse off than before because it was already in bad shape because so many people had left, including the ruler, the, the leader of the synagogue, and now he's the replacement. This did not go well. Sosthenes may have been the one that gathered them all together he may have, and, and now they're turning on him and they seized him and they beat him before he could leave the tribunal and Gallio as the people expected just showed no concern whatsoever he said handle it yourself oh you're beating him okay that's fine I don't care but the whole incident must have had a deep effect on Sosthenes because this is not the last time we hear about Sosthenes uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Now remember, he's in Corinth, so he's writing to the same church. And, he's, and he says, our brother Sosthenes greets you. Now, we can't prove necessarily with, with absolute certainty that, that it's the same one, but in my mind, it must be the same Sosthenes. It, it would be unlikely that there'd be another prominent Sosthenes who was going to be well known in the Corinthian church. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and it, so, I mean, how marvelous is the grace of God? The leader of the opposition, a man who, 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 who must himself have blasphemed against Paul and the gospel, now has become a brother in the Lord. There's nobody that's unreachable. And with this victory before Gallio and the conversion of Sosthenes, there must have been more freedom than ever for the Christians to witness for Christ in Corinth. More freedom than, they had, than Paul had seen anywhere else. See, you see how what seemed bad turned into be something really powerful. 
Verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at King Crea because of a vow he had taken. By the way, King Crea is the, is the, uh, is the eastern port uh, there, six or seven miles, but we'll, get the, we'll talk about that in a minute. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus, where he landed at Caesarea. He went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. So, after some time, probably several months, Paul sailed for Syria in the final part of his second missionary journey. And it says that he took Priscilla and Aquila with him. And, and, but it says that before they actually took off in Cancrea, which was that port, uh, and before they set sail, it was the eastern harbor, about six or seven miles from, from Corinth, Paul had his hair cut for he had taken a vow. Now, uh, there are times when Scripture says something and it just expects the people to understand it. This is one of those times. So let me explain what's happening here. This was probably a Nazarite vow. Uh, and, and, and a Nazarite vow was a special vow that a Jewish individual would pledge himself or herself to the Lord's exclusive use to accomplish a specific objective. And during the time of a Nazarite vow, uh, by the way, uh, Samson uh, was a Nazarite. That's an example, a scriptural example. But, but during that time, they were to abstain from any product of the vine, whether it's wine or strong drink or grapes or raisins or juice. They had to avoid contact with the dead, which, by the way, when you read these things, you begin to realize that uh, Samson just bit by bit broke every one of them. And the third thing was they were to allow his or her, her hair to go uncut. In fact, when, when Jews saw a fellow Jew with long hair, especially if it was a man, they immediately recognized the signs of taking a vow. They would know just by looking, oh, he's taking a Nazarite vow. And according to the custom, uh, Paul was to deliver a special sacrifice to the temple upon the conclusion of his vow. And, and it was at the end of the vow that you would cut your, cut your hair. And so he has been letting his hair grow. So he took his vow sometime in the past. Now that the vow is done. And so he's cut his hair. And, and, and the, what you would normally do is you would go to, the, to, the, to Jerusalem. You had to go to the Jerusalem temple. And you would present an animal that was burned on the altar. Uh, and then you would present your hair that had been cut to the priest. Who would then burn that on the altar with the, with the animal as a peace offering. And after that ritual, then the Nazarite would again go back to normal life, be able to eat fruit of the vine, all those other things. So most likely what has happened here is that the, the vow that Paul made was probably in response to the vision of Jesus, telling him to keep preaching and to not fear. Very likely he made a vow before God to say, okay, I hear what you're saying. I'm making a, a vow before you, God. I will finish the work that you've given me here in Corinth. Now that work was done. He's ready to leave Corinth. His vow is finished. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. So he says, okay, it's time to cut my hair. And when they came to the great city of Ephesus, which later we'll come back and talk more about it, because he spends a lot more time there on his third journey. He, he comes there and, and Priscilla and Aquila is with him. He left them there. 
It's very possible that he was thinking to himself that if the Lord wills, he's planning on coming back to Ephesus because he sees that as an important center, uh, commercial center and, and travel center. It's a great place to be able to spread the gospel from, which it became that. And, uh, and so he may have uh, left Priscilla and Aquila there thinking they can begin laying groundwork. They can begin the work now. And so he left them there. This time, however, before he, when he wanted to go into Asia to preach, the Spirit told him no. This time there was no check in his spirit from preaching, so he went to the synagogue. And there, instead of finding Jews that were resistant, he found Jews who were willing to listen to this reasoned presentation of the gospel. In fact, they listened. It, it touched him so deeply that they wanted him to stay longer, but he said, no, I can't. Uh, but he did in his farewell say, listen, I promise I'll come back, Lord willing. If God wills it, I'll come back. He was going to Jerusalem. Now, he was probably in the timing of this, he was probably, uh, it was probably Mar in, uh, early spring, um, and, uh, and he was probably going back to Jerusalem trying to get there before Passover started uh, for one reason, because he knew there'd be great, great crowds there to be able to preach the gospel there. So he heads back there. He lands at Caesarea, paid his, moved on from there to Jerusalem, paid his respect to the Jerusalem church, uh, probably letting them know he had carried out their instructions from the council in Acts 15. And then from Jerusalem, it says he went down to Antioch of Syria. Um, down doesn't just necessarily mean elevation. It also means uh, they would speak of going up to Jerusalem. Anytime you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up because it was a spiritual high place in, their, in the Jewish mind. And, uh, and he ends up back in Antioch of Syria. And this brought him to the end of his second missionary journey. 3,500 miles in about three years, taking the gospel to people who had never heard before. I want to close with this. I want to give you three lessons from Corinth. And really, most of these come right out of that moment where Jesus appeared in a vision. Here's, here's the first one. You tend to get the guidance you need when you need it, not before, and not in too much detail. Anybody relate with that one? Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision. He said, keep on speaking and don't be afraid. Now listen, Paul needed that from God right then. He, he, didn't, he didn't need that guidance when he was in Athens. He didn't need that guidance when he was in Berea. He didn't need that guidance in any other place he had been. He needed it right there in Corinth. He needed it because now he, was, he had just walked into this extremely spiritually dark demon-infested city of Corinth that is known for their immorality and is known for their sin. They're so far from God. This is the moment he needed this guidance from the Lord. And, and, and Jesus didn't give him very many details there, did he? He just said, speak. He didn't say, I want you to go over to this place and speak and then go over to that place and speak. And then, you, then if you go down to the corner of 5th and, and, and whatever, Smith Street, then you can speak there. He didn't give him all those details. He just said, go speak. And then he didn't tell him what he should say. He didn't say, I want you to go to this person and I want you to say this and then, then this will happen. He didn't tell him what to say. He didn't tell him where to go to speak. He, 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 the fact is, he did not show Paul the end of the pathway. He just showed him the next step. He said, this is what you do. Go speak without fear. And you know what? That's usually the way God works in our lives. He does not show us the end from the beginning. Honestly, if we knew everything about our future, we would probably be 
so overwhelmed and too afraid to even try to move forward. Some of you, you know, all of us in this room, we have, we have walked through some difficult things. If, and if you had heard from the Lord, if you had known beforehand this is going to happen, a lot of us would say, I don't want to do that. I can't go there. But then when, we, when it happens, the Lord gives us the strength that we need there. But he gives us the guidance that we need for the next step. He shows us enough to take the next step. Now, if you're like me, I, I want to know more than the next step. You know, I want to say, okay, Lord, I see that next step, but I want to see 10 steps down the road. Where is this going to lead? If I take this step, what's going to happen? And he doesn't tell me that. He just says, listen, I'm showing you the next step. You take the next step, and when you take that step, I'll show you the next step after that, and you just trust me in this. And, and, and the, you know, it's like he said in Psalm 119, he said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But you know what? That light doesn't go all the way home when I start out the, the door from work it, it shows me the next step just a little bit ahead he shows us enough of the path ahead so that we can take the next step knowing that in faith he is guiding our steps and if he gives me this step if I take it he's going to show me the next step I need to take second lesson God knows where you are and he knows what you need and when you need it you know, here was Paul starting to, maybe a little fear was starting to creep in about what was going to happen. Is this going to happen again, Lord? The Jews are rising up. Am I going to be beaten again? Am I going to be, am I going to be in prison again? Am I, am I going to be stoned again? I've, I've been through all these things once, Lord. I don't know if I can handle this. And the Lord, here's the thing. The Lord knew that what, what Paul could handle. He knew that maybe if he had to walk through that again, that that was going to paralyze him, is going to keep him from moving forward in a city like Corinth. He, he knew that Paul could only take so much, even a great, as great a man as he was. He knew that another beating, that just might take all the, the wind out of his sails. He knew that, that Paul needed assurance. He, needed, he knew that Paul needed reassurance. And he knew that Paul needed something, something big, something profound to calm his nerves, to lift his spirits, and to build his faith. But he, because there, he could have encouraged Paul in many, many ways, but he did it in a, in, a, in a supernatural, powerful way because that was what Paul needed. He was facing some really severe issues, the possibility of being beaten again. And no human being, I don't care how much you love the Lord, you don't look for, for opportunities to be beaten. I was listening this morning to uh, Voice of Martyrs uh, radio and and they were interviewing a Chinese pastor, and he was talking about all the times that he had been imprisoned. And, and, he, and he said, you know, he, he said in the interview, he said, um, I, I don't, uh, he said, I don't want to be put in jail. He said, he said it, I'm a, it brings fear to my heart. But it didn't stop him from moving forward. It's, it's just normal to, to be able to, to face those fears. And, 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 and the Lord knew what... Paul was going through and he knew that Paul needed that powerful vision right at that moment he didn't need a little reminder of the Lord's presence he needed a big reminder that the Lord was with him and, li and listen to me the Lord knows exactly what you need and he knows exactly when you need it if you need a miracle that changes your circumstances that's what you're going to get 
But if you need strength to carry you through your circumstances, that's what you're going to get. If you need him to speak to the storm to, to calm it, then that's what you're going to get. But if you need peace uh, in the midst of the storm, that's what you're going to get. He knows what you can handle. He knows what he's trying to accomplish in your life. He knows what he's doing. He knows what you are, he, where you are. He knows exactly what you need. And what you need is what you're going to get from him. Not necessarily, by the way, what we want. Whatever you need, he knows. And he is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. He knows what you need and when you need it. Lesson number three. God is at work keeping his promises, even when circumstances seem to be saying otherwise. Think about Paul. He had received this promise. You're not going to be harmed. I'm going to, you're, you're, nothing bad is going to happen to you. You're not going to be harmed. You're not going to be hurt here in, in Corinth. And now he's being pulled in, uh, in front of Gal Galio. And if, if, you know, listen, in the natural, you look at it and you're thinking to yourself, here we go. Same song, second verse. Or in Paul's, <laughs> Paul's case, probably about the sixth or seventh verse. It looked from the outside as if the events of the past were about to play out all over again. In fact, even when Paul begins to, to speak up in his defense and he gets cut off, this has happened before and it's never been a good thing. However, what time showed was that in spite of the circumstances, God was still in control and God was still going to keep his promise. Listen, when we, when we have a promise from God, we have to hold on to that promise regardless of what the circumstances around us might be saying. And, and, and in that moment when it seems as if nothing is happening, when it seems as if God's promise is lost, we can have peace, we can have joy knowing that God is at work as we sang Sunday, even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. And, and I pray that, that this would be our declaration of faith, that regardless of circumstances, regardless of what things may look like on the outside, that we would stand on the, the knowledge of saying, I know God is at work. And we would say, I, I, in the midst of these terrible circumstances, if this is where God is working, I want to be in the middle of what God is doing. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I thank you that you are in control.